you pissed me off. I said, you pissed me off too, buddy. Come on. When I first got to the Tribune and they say, this is my photographer. Oh, God. Oh, don't get me started. Okay, go ahead. And then, I, and you know how I respond? This is a caption writer. <laughs> There's nothing more dangerous than a 14-year-old with an AK-47. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Talking Pictures Podcast. I'm Todd Meisner. Today's guest, Phil Greer, photojournalism legend, formerly of the Chicago Tribune, currently the photojournalist at residence at Southern Illinois University. I know this podcast is long, but it's worth every minute. It is a master's class in photojournalism. My conversation with Phil is simply the most inspirational conversation about photojournalism and journalism in general that I've had with anyone in the longest time. His stories are amazing. His perspective is awesome. And if you are a photojournalist, when you are done listening to this hour, which I promise you will go by in a blink of an eye, you will be ready to run through the wall and take some of the best pictures of your career after listening to the way Phil talks passionately about how important it is what we do for a living. So with that said, here's my conversation with Phil Greer. Hello. Phil, Todd Meisner. Talk to you about doing oh, the yeah. podcast. How are you? Good. Hey, uh, I really... Uh, I really appreciate you doing this. Sitting at my kitchen table, trying to figure out some other questions to talk to you about other than just Scott Mervis, because he only needs X amount of publicity. But man, you, what haven't you done? Your journalism career, photojournalism career is just immense. I mean, it's incredibly impressive. It's because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm right behind you on that one, but... Uh, you know, I was looking at uh, a Google search, and it, I found a, a thing that said that in 1997, the Chicago Tribune had 38 photographers, 12 picture editors, three assignment editors, one director of photography, and nine staff, including a secretary. That's true. And I called John Kim this morning, and he told me that they now have 12 photographers, five visual editors, one assignment editor, and a director of photography. How yeah. does how does that make you feel that 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 staffs are shrinking like that? Uh, it doesn't make me feel good. I, uh, major retreats across you know across the industry in the Tribune when I was director of photography, we uh, <laughs> we had a what, four people working just in the studio alone. We had uh, satellite offices that we had photographers assigned to. We had foreign bureaus that uh, photographers were continually going back and forth to. <laughs> we had a Washington bureau that was staffed with a photographer, and it, that's all gone. It's just all gone. We had, uh, I, know, I can't remember the number of lab technicians that we had, but it was, yeah. Yeah, well, if it was anything like 1997, you had, uh, it would be eight lab technicians and one secretary. I was always really jealous that you guys had a secretary because she might help with, or he might help with contest entries. Because back in the day when we had to make prints and do contest entries, I always thought, oh, God, I wish we had somebody to help us with this. But uh, um, actually, what I, what I did, and Jack Korn before me and Tony Berardi before that, on Tribune contest entries, the photographers either, when it was prints, did that themselves. 
or else the uh, one was electronic and then we submitted, but we paid for all entry fees. And then we also paid for them to be members of NPPA and the Illinois Press Photographer Association. So that, that was, I, we probably had 45, 50 members of the NPPA and, uh, and Illinois Press Photographers at that time. And the Tribune supported that. I think where the, tri- where the Tribune well, I hate to say it, but but the worst thing that happened at the Tribune was when they bought the L.A. Times, because that started, in effect, oh, I would have to say they were looking at duplicate, the Washington Bureau of the L.A. Times, the, the Chicago Tribune Bureau of the L.A. Times, and they started consolidating. And I think that that actually cost the Tribune, because where they were to the voice, and I'm not taking anything away from smaller papers, I'm talking about the amount of money that they had, the resources and everything, how they covered the Midwest and the world. That sort of, they started pushing more of that over toward LA and less toward Chicago. And I really believe that hurt them. Yeah. And, it, and, um, Sam Zell's purchase probably didn't help either. I mean, the just general ownership of, no, the, Zell, you know, that was, uh, there was a, there's a history there. I yeah. think that, uh, when Madigan took over as the uh, the publisher and the CEO, he began to turn around and sell off resources and do things like that. At one time, the Tribune owned from the tower all the way out to the lake in Chicago. And all that was sold off with Madigan. And I don't know where they actually put that money. They were buying at that time, trying to buy television stations and, and other things, but it was not going into the... Uh, into the Tribune Company. And then I think when Zell came in, well, obviously, if you've read about him, and I know you have, he's just Grave Dancer is is absolutely correct. He had little money invested in it and then selling off their properties like the Cubs and things like that. It was just more of a drain on the uh, on Tribune resources. So, Well, it's uh, certainly not a good state of things, but the, so you were at the Tribune for 24 years. For those of the people who listen to the podcast that don't know your story, Eric, you were born in Chicago and your first job was in Champaign, then the Courier in Champaign, and then the Tribune. I I had a year in Dayton, Ohio. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It was that one year too many or? Oh, in Dayton? Yeah. At that time, I think, well, it's an interesting story. You want to hear it? Sure. I want to hear all your interesting stories. Uh, well, what happened, I was working, my first job was at the News Gazette in, in Champaign. And then I walked in. I was just getting out of, out of the Air Force. I walked in and Harold Holmes was there. I think he was the managing editor. And he offered he gave me a job. And it was, uh, <laughs> he told me he'd pay me $1.85 an hour. I worked there for four weeks, and it was pretty good so many hours. I figured it out. I said, Harold, how much did you say you were going to pay me? And he said, a dollar and 85 cents an hour. And I said, well, that's not what's happening here. And I said, you're paying me a dollar and 65 cents an hour. He, he said, well, that can't be right. Two weeks later, he turns around, he calls me into his office, and he says, you've been doing such a great job here that we're going to give you a raise. And I said, you are? And he said, yeah, 20 cents an hour. And I thought, well, $1.85, $1.95, 205 Guess what? 
I went to a dollar and eighty five cents an hour, which is what he hired me. You can't even but buy a pack to, of gum for that now. But anyway, yeah, yeah I know. But he, he used to lock the film up in a cabinet by his uh, by his desk, and whenever he'd count the assignments, and he'd give you how much film he thought you needed to cover that day. <laughs> And he, he he did not believe in 35 millimeter cameras at all. Everything had to be, he wanted to shout out two and a quarter. And I'd go in and I'd, I'd fib. I'd tell him, I need this, I need this. And then I'd take it down to Fairchild Camera and I'd trade his 120 film for 35 millimeter film. Would, <laughs> I'd, I'd bulk load that. And then, you know, <laughs> and he didn't catch on until football game started and I was oh. good, using telephoto lenses and the other photographers were uh, well that's anyway that's how the trip or, or the they finally went to 35 millimeter at the news gazette <laughs> that's that's a great story I can't even imagine trying to cover a football game with a two and a quarter camera but so the year the year in Dayton you left you were in Dayton for a year one. That goes back to to the Courier. the The Courier at that time had Jim Rutledge and uh, Jim Rutledge, Kurt Beamer, Chuck Scott cut his teeth there. Don Beerman, who was, was runner up to National Press Photographer of the Year a couple of times, there. a great newspaper, and it was owned by Lindsay Schaub. So I moved to Dayton, and Sink called me, and he just. Said, I realize you're in a larger metropolitan area, but how would you like to come back and work, you know, for a first place minor league newspaper? Because I think they had like 26,000 circulation. So I went back and talked to him. He stood me on the corner and he said, you see that sign? I said, yeah. He says, it says C-O-U-R-I-E-R. There's an hour in Courier. He sold me. <laughs> so I left Dayton and I came back to uh, to Champaign Urbana and I spent twelve years there until it until it folded and that uh, it folded simply because the uh, Lindsay Lindsay Schaub, uh, the owners taxes and feuding and all of that and they sold it to Lee Enterprises. And then I wound up. Uh, Sitting in Champaign Urbana, I had two offers, one from the Tribune and one from Seattle. I'm an Illinois boy, so I went to Chicago and started 24 years in Chicago. So, so you served during Vietnam in the Navy yes. or the Air Force? Air Force. Air Force. How did your, your because you, you covered, you know, a wars like Iran-Iraq War, the Nicaraguan War, the invasion of Panama earthquakes and whatnot in Mexico. How, how did your military experience play into not only the kinds of pictures you made, but the way you were able to react to stress in the field? Well, I think any time that you've experienced something like that, you become a little bit street smart and you pick up on things. And I'm not going to say, in, in covering a lot of the, uh, in those situations, the first thing you have to do is find someone, local person who's a handler, and and by that, you know, someone who can procure cars for you and someone that uh, that can exchange money, you know. I, I remember like in Nicaragua with Isaac, when you walked, when you landed, it was like 70 Cordobas to the dollar. And for a dollar, you could get a thousand Cordobas <laughs> in town. So 
you turn around and you'd uh, you'd go to your handler, and then he'd come in with two grocery bags full of Cordovas that you use for local stuff and things like that, which caused the Tribune to have heart attacks when you came back and you filled out your expense account. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. But, but 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 that and and. Uh, you never went. I never did anyway. If I was going somewhere, I always told people where I was going. And I usually, you know, it would be, well, uh, if it wasn't a reporter, it would be like Isaac or, or I would go, but we would tell them when we expected to be back and things like that. And they were pretty aware of, of what was going, where, where we were and what was going on. Obviously, not all the time, because if you didn't uh, want someone to follow, you know, not. You were out to get the story, but I always sort of felt that it was, you know, you're covering the story and you're in the eyes of the public, and, and that's not an exclusive in a lot of cases. That's something that everybody needs to know. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. The Pulitzer Prize gateway to gridlock, how is that to be part of that team and to have that announcement made in the newsroom? Uh well, first of all, I would have to say I don't think that's my best work. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we're good. that's the and, next question and, after And that. honestly, I don't think it was the Tribune's best work because there were, there were things like killing our, our kids and things like that that we, we had done. But at that particular time, it was, uh, it was a hot-button issue across the United States on air travel and stuff like that. And we really lucked out because when we started setting that up, and, and getting permission to do it, we had no idea of what was going to transpire that day because we had major rainstorms and stuff in Chicago, and it was a mess. But uh, we had access, and it worked. We had what? We had photographers on airplanes flying to foreign, you know, across to Germany and, and things like that. We were at O'Hare Airport from midnight until midnight. The next, you know, the next day, plus people on planes and reporters, and it, uh, it was, it was definitely a team effort. And then we came back, and afterwards, I helped edit with Bill Parker and other people, and we put together a a uh, special section on it. But it was, uh, it was really a team effort, and I think, I think that uh, it served its purpose at that time. It was really needed. Now you want to know how we decided to do that project? Sure. Okay. Henry Lipinski was the editor of the Chicago Tribune at that time. All right. And she was at O'Hare and her plane was delayed for an hour and a half. She got angry. <laughs> <laughs> so she came back to the newsroom. She said, we have to do something about what goes on at O'Hare. So I'm not sure that we would have even taken that on if it hadn't been for. <laughs> that's funny. Well, huh? yeah, that's funny. I mean, it's yeah, it's a left turn, right turn. What happens when you go left or when you go yeah. right? And yeah. so, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, what do you consider your best work? I think my best work was probably in Central America, and honestly, uh, I did a lot of you know. In 24 years, aside aside from when I was chief photographer and uh, director of photography, Central America, Nicaragua, Mexico City, earthquake probably. Uh, the Iran Iraq War. We got into uh, 
I was really shut the, shut the plane down, and Iran was supposed to let us in, and they wouldn't. And I, uh, <laughs> so we talked our way into to Iraq. Steve Franklin was a reporter. We were trying to talk our way into Iraq, and then we'd gone to the Iraqi uh, consulate like four times, and they kept delaying. And I said, you've insulted me. You've insulted my paper, and you've insulted the uh you know, you've insulted uh, my nation, and then they called me back in. They said, "Okay, you have a you have a permit to go to Iraq." So they flew us to Bag- Baghdad at three o'clock in the morning. We got off the plane, and they had a handler there to meet us. And I had a relief transmitter. They thought I was a CIA spy or something at that time. They took they took us down to the uh, to the green zone to I think it was the Hilton Hotel. And when we got there, there were people in our room, or in the rooms they wanted us to have, so they got them up and threw them out and put us in. And picked up the phone to call the reporter, and they would pick up the phone and they'd listen. <laughs> so, Crazy. <laughs> so we went through that, and then I finally got into Iran by, by the back door. I went to the Fal Peninsula with the Iraqi army. He told me, he says, we were 15 clicks inside Iraq, do not, Iran, do not get lost. But it was, <laughs> uh, it was, uh, <clears throat> that was when I was young and wild. I, I, I tamed it down now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, the, uh, I was fast. I'm always fascinated being a, a kid from the Chicago suburbs has always been fascinated. And one of the things when you Google you, uh, is the pictures you took of the mobsters coming going from court? Yeah, that was. And, and I worked. Well, I worked the. I preferred this. I, Frank Haynes and I worked the early shifts. One would go north and one would go south to cover the city, and then one of us would usually wind up over at the at the federal building for whatever mobster was being arraigned or or what was going on, and. So, but those were a lot of, you, you sat there a long time waiting for them to come in or come out. And a lot of those were what we used to call, well, cluster messes. Because yes, I've around. been a part of a few of those in my day, yeah, too. Yeah. I covered quite a few of those. I did a lot of murders, you know, gangland hits where they, a lot of them lived in the, oh, the Italian neighborhood of Chicago along Taylor Street. Okay. So you'd go down there a lot of times and you'd be waiting for, you know, in front of someone's house when uh, the, the, the murder victim or when police were coming to investigate something or something like that. So you spent a lot of time doing that. But honestly, some of the best things I think I ran into in Chicago were on that six o'clock shift. We'd listen to police scanners and and we would catch a lot of things that... Uh, uh, I don't know, aftermaths of fires and, you know, I took a photo once of Louis Galente, who was the fire chief in Chicago and it was up on North Milwaukee Avenue and the roof. And it was arson in a, in a, in a uh, electronic store and the roof caved in and they were out there like 16 hours trying to find firemen and he came up with a, with a hat, and there were tears in his eyes, and his face was smudged, and he was on his knees. 
But those are images, I think, that, you know, speak to the human condition. I think a lot of times, you know, we would go into, like, oh, like killing our kids. We paid no, or, you know, or, or you know, the Tribune at that time paid little or no attention. It would be buried inside if, if a young person was gunned down in Chicago, gang violence. But something like that happened in the suburbs, it usually wound up page one. And we decided one year, well, this was, was Dick Sacone, that it was out of control. And how were we going to handle that? And we decided we would document every child in the city of Chicago that was gunned down by gang violence. I sent Rod Lamke over to Cook County Hospital because we knew that it, this was going to happen. And they brought a young man in about 1.32 o'clock in the morning, and we talked to his family, and they agreed we could cover this. We tried to save him and everything. They couldn't. He died. And Rod came back with a photograph of him laying on the gurney, and there was a blood-soaked sheet. His face was showing. And Scona and I, and at the 4.30 dope, we kept going back and forth with the other editors on whether this should run or not, whether it should run or not. We decided it should run. And we put it on page one. And Dick says, tomorrow morning you can answer the phone. And it yeah. lit up. But you know, most people when you when we explained why we did that and calling attention to that, bought it. That caused the Chicago Police Department to put extra patrols on foot in the neighborhoods, fathers to start walking their their, their children to school, the young ones, fathers to go out and get teenage boys off the corners. And there's a reason for that. So I think when we were doing things like that, that, you know, that's, people would say, well, it's not like being a foreign correspondent, but that, that was very, very important. That was community service. And that was really calling attention to, you know, to the public of, hey, this has gone too far. It has to stop. In listening to you talk, I imagine, well, in your new, in your new career, or your your second career, you're the photojournalist in residence at, at Southern Illinois University. I had Jacob Wagan as an intern. He's and, a great kid. And he boy, I'll tell you, and our copy desk still talks about how good he was at writing cut lines. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, he, good photographer, but boy, that the effort that the that young man put into the entire package was yeah. amazing. And and he's a really good kid. And he thinks the world of you. And so in listening to you talk about the, the role photojournalism play in making a difference, is that one of the things that you try to impart to your students? Uh, absolutely. I, uh, I, well, as long as I've been there, we've, we've done some things out here. We went to Cairo, which is dead end. It can't go any further in Illinois. And we spent, I sent them down there for four semesters and we documented that town on what transpired. And, and uh, it wasn't just river traffic living, it was racism and, and everything and what still exists there today. We put out a book and, and a website on that and it was called the Cairo Project. That was all done by students. And yeah, you sit there and you tell them, well, what about this photograph? And you do this and you do that. And what is the content here? Yeah, do, you know, this is this this photograph. Does it, do you get any feeling out of this photograph? If it doesn't create some kind of emotion, 
it, it, it's not it, it's it's not worth going in a book. It's not worth going on the web. And I continually harp on moments, 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 and get people to talk to you. Many times that's a highlight of their day, if you know, because you're paying attention to them. Listen to what they say, and you'll be amazed at where they lead you. So we do that. Captions, AP style, who, what, when, where. I want a name. I want the year they are in school, or, or if it's an old coal miner who worked 45 years at, at the uh, Wasson mine, I want to know that. So spend the time to talk to them. Go early, stay late. Uh, amen, brother. I, I gave a, a talk at the University of Iowa's photojournalism class last week. A lot of those same themes uh, were part of my talk and with with my interns and with my staffers. It's that's, that's the same. You preach to the choir, but that, yeah, 100% with uh, what you just said. Um, well, I, be I believe this, and I tell them, you know, if you go into this profession, you have a responsibility because you're the eyes of the public. And the ears of the public, and they can't be there. And you're the one that informs them. And you write history on a daily basis, or you record history on a daily basis. And you turn around. I may, well, in the basic class, I always make them go back. I have a top 10 list, and I keep changing it. But I make them look at works like Gordon Parks, and, and I make them look at. Uh, well, I'm not going to go through them all, but different photographers who blazed trails, Larry Burroughs, going back to Vietnam after he'd been wounded. And, and, and now I have to go and tell the story. It's important. I have to tell the story. That's something I really, I, I really push them on. And if they don't, you know, if they don't want to buy into that, you can really tell. I mean, I'm sure you can, too, when you talk yeah. to them. The ones that really want to do something and make a difference and the ones that don't. And you talk to them today when people pay, they don't read like they used to. It's a visual world. I mean, in my years at the at the Tribune, it was always, I don't know, the, I can't think of how many times a, uh, oh, a director of photography or a, uh, or anyone from the visual side managed to become a managing editor or an editor of a newspaper. If they, they did, it was few and far between. But the most important thing, when you picked up a newspaper or when you look at a website, is what do they look at first? The headline, the photograph, the caption. And then if you capture them you know, with those, any of those three things, they'll go and they'll read your story. It, it's simple, and it's becoming more and more that way. I, I talk to the kids about how the, the fact that they're the most visually acute. We were surrounded. I, I graduated from high school in 1983. And, mm -hmm. and so in 1983, I had the Trib and I had the Sun-Times and, you know, whatever magazines I could get my hands on. And, mm -hmm. and, and so – but now that there's a fire hose of visuals – everywhere that that that, mm. that is just shooting into their eyes and their ears and their mouth and everything and sometimes there's so much overload that they have a that that you that you have to kind of help train them to think of to understand what's good and that volume is not always the, the equal good and so right um i talk to my classes down here now a lot about visual pollution oh i love and that term i'm gonna steal that from you that's fine 
But visual pollution, you know, when you look through these images and, and, and you tell me, does it speak to you? Does it give you any information? Does it make you curious? If it doesn't, then that's that's not good. You know, that's not good photography. I have a student from Japan right now who uh, she's an international student. She said, I took this class. I hate photo- hated photography when I came here. And I said, why did you hate photography? She said, everybody stand straight, look at camera. And I, I was laughing. I said, well, that's not what this was all about. She's taken off like a rocket, you know. And I was laughing. She got to Chicago in the bean. Everybody shoots the bean. Right. So you know how she shot the bean? She got herself in a position where she could shoot reflections. And she had these two couples you know, standing there. She shot it vertical, too, which helped. But two couples standing there with their with their iPhones out, hugging each other and one kissing. And I said, now, that's thinking, and that's different. And that's, you know, and, and she's done that ever since. Now she wants to be a picture editor when she goes back to Japan. <laughs> well, see, that, 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 I, I looked at, I, I found some reviews of you, and they're all, they're all positive. And one one student or current student or ex-student said, Phil is the man, changed my life, and has made me develop a strong interest in photojournalism. Please, if you're interested in photojournalism, take one of his classes. He'll make you a better photojournalist. Sure, he'll critique your photos, but it helps you in the long run. How does that make you feel? Uh, I found out something when I, when I came down here. I said, it's going to stay five years. But... When you get 17 or 18-year-old kids come in, 19-year-old, and you have to be a father confessor at times. You have to try to lead them back. Uh, carrot and stick a lot of times. I'll talk about the good things they've, they've done, and then I'll turn around and say, but look at this, look at this. And we'll start cropping photographs and doing things like that. And then I always try to leave them with a positive you know, a positive. What about this? What about the angle? Did you ever think of the angle? Everything is shot at eye level. But then I'll come, I'll come down hard too. I mean, if you, uh, if you aren't doing it, I walked out on a class once because I went a week without turning in anything. And I said, well, I'm wasting my time. So if, if you know, if you don't want to do this, we might as well just cancel the class. And I walked out. And my TA was sitting there. They said, well, why is he so mad at us? And she said, she's from Scotland. She said, he wants you to do some fucking work. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And in but the that, Scottish accent, it would have been even better. Yeah. Well, I had, you know, I recruited Bauman down here, too. Do you know Bruce Bauman? Yeah. Um, I'd been here about five years. And that probably was I had three or four years. Anyway. When I got him down here, we really had it. uh, We played good guy, bad guy, cop a a lot of times, and we switched back and forth. But it always ended with Bruce. If he was a bad guy, he'd say, "What a candy bar." (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think I think about these. The emphasizing the positive is the only way to get them to listen to the to the to the to your criticism because you they have to feel like they're you're in their court. And that you're looking out for them, um, yes. and you're here not to 
to make yourself look better, but to help them get better. And I, I always, I always tell the story that I I was, when I was a student at Iowa, um, there was the, the Iowa journalism, Iowa press photographers association student contest. Mm -hmm. And back then it was prints on the wall. And we had one guy that worked with us at the daily Iowa. And and I'm like, dude, do not enter this picture. You, you, it's not a good picture. You really ought not to it. And then Scott, uh, would say no, don't you know? Don't don't enter that picture. Just put put it back in your bag and just don't put it up on the wall. It's just not good. And what it was was this picture of this polar bear, stuffed polar bear, and there was this kid playing underneath it. But there was camera shake. It wasn't his best effort. It brought his portfolio down. We all knew it. We were trying to kind of convince him not to put it in. He's like, no, no, no. I like this picture. I'm like, all right, all right, that's fine. You know, it's yeah. your portfolio. So. The, the judge who was the person, you know, how you learn from people's mistakes or like you want to emulate them. Well, from this judge, mm-hmm. I learned how never to be. He walks up to, you know, he goes through the portfolios and he gets to this portfolio and he and he looks at this picture and he walks over to it. And, you know, you've got a whole line of students and press photographers watching the judging, yeah. trying to learn. And he goes, what is this piece of crap? He goes, yeah. What, it's not like the fucking bear was moving. Yeah. And the kid was crushed. Yep. He crushed him. Yeah. And we spent the rest of the evening trying to build him back up and make him feel good about, you know, the good work that he had done. But that one moment in time to make this, to make himself seem more powerful he crushed this guy and that's just well, not the way to do things no it's not and especially when you're talking young young people i mean if you took a, a basic class down here and i've had people tell me this you're not the same when i get into advanced or if i go into a 14 1400 or 400 level class now it's not the same at that point because you you've had one or two classes and this is decided you've decided this is what you're going to do. I'm still positive on a lot of things, but it gets a lot harder. Yeah. Well, the expectation level is higher. Yeah, sure. One of the things that we've been blessed out here and God bless, and, uh, God bless them. Nikon has an equipment locker program. Ooh. And they put like $150,000 worth of equipment in down here. Wow. And then they turn around and they switch it out and they sell it to the students at a discount if they want it. That's but awesome. Had, huh? That's awesome. It is awesome. And it, uh, you know, it's, I don't know how many schools they have. I spent so much money with him at the Tribune that when I called Tequila and talked to him about it, he said, oh, all right. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the mirror cameras, even the mirrorless cameras, Yeah. when they came out, they shipped three of them down here. So the students had those right away. I mean, it's, uh, oh, we've been blessed by that, and that's helped, too, because most of the students down here, if you know anything about Southern Illinois University, are not from rich families. And it's the... Uh, a lot of them is first generation. They never had a chance to go to, to a university. So it's, yeah, that's helped us immensely. But I believe this. I honestly believe this. The bullcrap of, of, of cutting back on, on visual people and people who can go out and tell multimedia, do multimedia stories and everything, that's going to reverse itself because 
honestly, in this country, people are, are, are reading less and they're relying on visuals more. And that makes it even more, not more important, but just as important and maybe, maybe in the future more important than it has been in the past. And if you can get people who are dedicated and really want to do it, you will, you will be able to turn around and, and, and sustain yourself. But, you know, just to be a hack, I don't think so, not anymore. That's the way it is. No, I, I, I agree with you. Now, speaking of hacks, uh, Scott Mervis. How'd you like that transition? Um, so I'm, I'm looking at Twitter one afternoon or one evening, and I see Tim Ty, who was a guest when he was a student on the podcast, and now he's in Philadelphia, uh, had had gone after Scott Mervis. And for those people who don't know Scott, who Scott Mervis is, Scott Mervis is the music critic for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And he decided to write and uh, – oh, let's see. Let me get it out here real quick. Something I sort of called. I, 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 I sort of called him out on that. You're a movie critic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's – yeah. Oh, here it is. He wrote on his Twitter at – to, I think he did it. At, he got up in the morning. It was eight o'clock in the morning when he wrote this. I'm almost certain that George Carlin would recoil at the now oft used term photojournalist. And he put photojournalist in quotes. Were reporters their photographers? That's that. And then he, yeah. then his, his Twitter feed lit up with photographers. And then at two o'clock in the afternoon, he decided to make things worse by writing, oops, I forgot that photographers are the most sensitive people on earth. Right. And uh, you were one of the people who lit him up. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, I read that. And one of the things you have to, well, my history, you know, you go back and this used to infuriate me that because in Chicago and, and in most places, the first one on the scene is the photojournalist. The reporter will show up, or, or when you get back to the office, you'll end up telling about what transpired. But who experienced it? Who was there? Who felt the emotion? Who had to document it visually? It's, it, it's different. Who, and you can't miss the moment. It, it, it only happens once. If you're a reporter, you can reconstruct it three sources, you're good to go. But a photojournalist can't do that. And to turn around and take the visual report is not, you know, not as important or even more important, you know, than, than, than the printed word. Sometimes you're just flat wrong. And it's, it's, it, it used to bug me. I'd go out when I first got to the Tribune and they'd say, this is my photographer. Oh God! Oh, don't get me started. Okay, go ahead. And then, I, and you know how I respond? This is a caption writer. <laughs> That's good. I like that. So you know, and then you, you would go into meetings, and it, it was it was so absurd at times. You'd have you know people come in from all right from um, from the feature section, and they'd be pitching something on a television show. That was going to premiere, and they brought that on page one. And I sat there, and it went, no, it can go in the day box. There's a promo, but it's not page one. It's not page one art, and it's not going to be page one art. And they would just say, what? 
you think you think that photograph's that important? Yeah, I think that photograph's that, that, that damn important. You turn around and you talk about honesty. It's not that's that's the pure moment when you're doing documentary photography. That's what transpired. It's not filtered. It's not reconstructed. It doesn't flow through another person's brain and then come out on the fingertips. No, that is the split second in time, frozen moment that, that tells the story. That's it. So why would you change it? Why would you, do, you know, why wouldn't you think that's, that's absolutely as important? Yeah. Is I, anything, you, you, anything you can possibly write. It, 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 it's 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 ridiculous, and you know he listed Julia Rindeman. She's one of my was one of my students. She worked at Pittsburgh, and she went to uh, got married out in she's in Carolina now, but she's freelancing page. Uh, one day she had a page one in the New York Times and Washington Post same day. He listed her as her friend. She sent me a private email and said, "I don't know how or what the hell he was thinking to do something like that." He sent me a, a, a response on Instant Messenger. He said, you pissed me off. I said, you pissed me off too, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, talk about, I guess the music critics are the most sensitive people on earth. But I, I just, I, I, I read that and I read your response and I read Tim's response. And, and so that's why I posted it. The response, we've never posted anything on that Facebook page that did as well as that. I mean, the engagements were off the charts and, and because I've had so many of your students wander through me through as interns or, and had contact with them through Illinois press photographers association or just, you know, I mean the social media thing, the, one of the great things I love about social media is that I can get to know people who I would never ever run into in the course of my day. Um, and, and like yourself, I looked at your pictures when I was a kid. <laughs> so, um, yeah. you know, and, and your name jumps out as one of the greats. And so the opportunity to be able to do this and be able to talk to you and listen to you talk, um, is, is, is a fabulous experience for me. And I, and I know it will be for our listeners. Um, I, I should point out, go ahead. I, I, I'm going to say something that, that I appreciate what you just said, but I always thought this, and I, I was blessed. John White and I went head-to-head for years in Chicago. You know, me on 6 o'clock at the Serbian, him on 6 o'clock at the Sun Times, and he's a dear friend. And we used to, you know, we used to turn around, and if I showed up in a situation first, and he showed up, I'd tell him everything that was going on, and he'd do the same thing. Then we would try to get the best image we possibly could. Then we would turn around and, you know, trying to get that image. And if he outshot me, I'd call him and I'd say, John, great shot. Good job. And he would do the same thing. But I can't tell you. This is what I say is so important if you can install, install it in them. We went there to try and tell a story. The number of times that we turned around and walked off of something and sat there with tears in our eyes. Can't tell you the number of times that we walked away with a big smile on our face. Those are special moments. And this is a special profession. It really, really is. And I, you know, it does, it, it really bothers me with what's happened with the, the, the number of layoffs and the, 
Unbelievable. Well, we didn't, we haven't ever really had the respect that we should have had, but wow. You know, what they're trying to do now is just absurd. And probably one of the reasons that the print media is in, in, in as much trouble as it is, too. So, I'm sorry. Uh, well, I you, I, well, I, 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 on what you just said, when I, I, I just wrote a blog post, um, which actually, when I posted it originally on Facebook, Facebook banned it. Because I used the word evangelism in the sense that I was evangelizing photojournalism, and somehow Facebook shut my post off. So then I had to, I took a screen capture of them shutting it off, posted that, and then I reposted it without the word evangelism. But I talk about that passion in your in their in their eyes was what it was. The lead on it is is the fact that these kids that are going into this, the industry is is there's no stability to it. So, you, but you have you have kids that are absolutely passionate about this profession, and it's the profession of reporting or storytelling, and that they they're they're running into the fire and and with no regard for their own personal safety, and absolutely. and and so I I just I just love it. I mean, I just love that that. I, I love the passion and and the this morning's episode that I I taped I I switched jobs, I was the director of photography for for almost thirteen years, twelve years something like that and after being a staffer and a lead staff photographer for a long time, um, so I've been at the paper for thirty years but after thirty years they wanted to promote me to associate editor and so the hard part was giving up that camaraderie that I would have every day with the photographers that was you know. It, it, I've taken a lot of pictures and and I'd still enjoy the the gig but the idea of that you you said it earlier that they were that they would give they don't give photographers opportunities very often to move out of that chair and so I thought it was almost an obligation if they were going to offer me the opportunity to take my sensibilities into that chair that Absolutely. I then I need to do it yeah, you remember the old quote from National Press Photographers Association? Every person owes part of their time to the upgrading of the profession to which they belong. Yeah. You remember that? Yes, I do. Yeah, I I tried to live by that. I I went through six years of it, and I say, with fifty people, it was draining. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I only but had it, four. Yeah, but it it was, and it. But I do it again. I mean, it's uh, yeah. So. Well, the influence that you've had moving forward, I mean, throughout your career, I mean, I think that's, you've lived that, you've lived that mantra and, and, and it's admirable. And I, I try to do the same thing. And that's why the, the whole Scott Mervis thing is just so ridiculous. And he's such a ridiculous person for doing this. And I, I did love that his, his follow-up apology was a bad apology. He wrote, this week I did a dumb tweet uh, about the term photojournalist in which I managed to suggest that news photographers weren't journalists. That wasn't my intention at all. Of course, they are, exclamation point. I apologize for that. And then Kyle Grantham, who was the clip chairman for MPPA for a long time, went after him. It's like, okay, whatever. You're just making your life more difficult, pal. I I, yeah. I don't even know what makes you get up. I, I, I'd be curious to talk to the some of the shooters in, in, in Pittsburgh that wonder like, what, why would, did he wake up pissed off or was he trying to just be funny? I mean, I don't understand why 
you put that out into social media, especially given they they were just releasing a project in Pittsburgh, this amazing project. They just won the Pulitzer <clears throat> Prize. Why would you? I mean, did you feel bad because you didn't get to be in the in the room when all those decisions were made and you, and you were out covering Kiss? I don't know. I can't answer that except that there are a lot of people. Reporters, in particular, and and word people, and and my God, I read, who simply don't have any respect at all for what you do. I, you know, it, as as a documentary photographer, as a photojournalist, you know, they'll turn around and ah, oh, God, dumb things. A reporter, well, when I was in the director of photography at the Tribune. We weren't dealing with the web then. We were just getting into it. But uh, reporter turns in a photo request. I changed it from assignment to request because then we would determine whether it was going to be covered or not. Take photos of people speaking German. <laughs> now think about that. <laughs> these are still these are still images. What do you want to do? Draw a cloud and say "Expect I mean. How ridiculous. And the response, well, you're just being difficult. You don't understand, you know, you don't understand reporting. You understand photography. Yes, I do. That's why I'm telling you that this is ridiculous. Yeah. Just a, a lack of uh, understanding. Here at Southern, if you get a journalism degree, you have taken one course in basic photojournalism. And that's fact. I and mean, you're not going to graduate with a journalism degree unless you have it. And that's good for young people going out there. So you you have an understanding of what, you know, that it's important. Well, uh, yeah, the, the idea that it will help them understand what would, and at the very, very, at the very bottom level of that is that they would understand what, if they're filling out a photo request, I remember Phil telling me that this wouldn't make a good, you know, maybe I changed my idea. And that's the, the idea of getting people to think visually and it's like, listen, we're going to develop these stories for this project. That's that's not a photo. That's not a photo. But wait a minute, over here, or when you have a reporter who's writing a story and then you find out about it. Now, as director, a lot of times I found out, I would find out when the assignment hit the system and I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a, like, this is a photo story. This is not just mm -hmm. a one-off picture and we walk right. away. So then you try to like, okay, let's remove. So in coming to the new job, I'm hoping to get those before they ever make the assignment and then work with the, the director of photography and then my boss, the associate managing editor, like, listen, we need to pull back from this, hold this story for a little while and let a photographer go after this and dig deeper visually. And then the reporter can step back in and maybe see the images and then do some more reporting. But absolutely, it, it, yeah, it just I mean, if you're going into corporate communications and you don't understand good visuals, you're going to be bad at, at just making the co company corporate newsletter, for mm -hmm. Christ's sake. I mean, or uh, event planning. I mean, University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication has a as an event planning track. And I said to the to the class, I mean, a couple of them were event planner kids in the class. And I said, you know, you're going to have to understand the way you present the event and how it's going to visual and how it's going to get photographed. And so this class, this basic photojournalism class, is going to give you an idea of how those things are made and, and created. Because how many times did you show up to a press conference that was backlit mm -hmm. by a giant window? Yep. 
oh, you can see the city. No, I can't see the city because he's a silhouette. That's right. So I, I could tell you a funny story about that. Oh, let me have it. Whenever Dirksen passed away, you know, Senator Dirksen from Illinois, mm-hmm. Bruce Bauman was working in Evansville, and I think I was working. I think I was still in Champaign. But we'd known each other, so we went up a day early, and they set the scaffolding up, and we knew it was going to be backlit. So we actually talked him into moving the scaffolding to the other side for the press, so it wouldn't be backlit. Yeah, but then he then he zapped me because. I went and drove the the route to the to the you know to the cemetery. I found a place where I could shoot it. I could still get back for the scaffolding before they got. So anyway, <laughs> I got into that position. I saw here's the car coming down the road and the police car leading, and it pops the over the hill. And I could see the the hearse right in behind it. Guess who's sitting in the front seat of the squad car? Bowman. Bowman. The deputy sheriff was his cousin. <laughs> The son hey. of a bitch never told me that. <laughs> well, sometimes it's not what you know, but who you know. Uh, but anyway, well, I, but we we actually did. We went early and got them to switch it around so that they wouldn't be backlit. They don't have any idea. So you know, I mean, how many times did you take a picture? I always prided myself on. Somebody would say, "Oh, yeah, this isn't going to be a very good picture." I'm like, "No, I I think I can make a good picture out of this." And then you'd go. And they wouldn't, you know, it was scheduled for inside someplace, you know, you'd squeeze every last drop of it and make a really good picture and they'd come back. And now you made somebody's decision really difficult because now you had the best picture from the assignment that they discounted in the morning meeting. Mm -hmm. And I I absolutely love to do that was just gave me just an absolute shot of adrenaline like no other. I think that, you know, I used to say this to, to, I say it to the students down here now, said to me once, there are no bad assignments. There are just bad photographers. Because if you go and you, you study a situation, there's going to be some interaction. There's going to be something going on that you can turn around and you can make a photograph of. The general news assignments, when they have to go do that, if you come back with a photo of someone standing just behind the podium talking, you've got a problem. Because that's not what transpired it is what transpired and that may be the secondary photo but i want to see reaction of the people i want to see you know what really you know i want some i want some emotion i want feeling in the photographs people laughed you know i wrecked them all out here with me and he comes that came into the class one day and he was talking to him he said yeah i remember the day that, that jesse jackson announced he was running for president this is the goal early, stay late. I went early and I talked to him, but I went to the kitchen at the Southside Church and they were making ribs. And they said, oh, he'll come down here and go through here when he leaves. I went upstairs and made my photographs, photographs of him behind the, with the rainbow push thing. Went downstairs and waited in the kitchen. Sure enough, after that, that was over, he comes down and he stops by the table and he picks up a rib and he starts chewing on it and he hears click. He looked over and he said, oh, no, Phil. Page one, Tribune, New York Times, Washington Post. Yep. Just going going early, staying late, so, trying to figure it out. I tell all the students to put this word on the back of their camera, think. 
Yeah, I uh, yeah, I I also like be curious. Yeah, because be curious. If you if you find people that are not curious, they're going to be really bad journalists. Absolutely, absolutely. And you said, listen, I you know when, when they start doing their multimedia piece, I keep saying, you know, the first day you may come back, you may not have any photographs that wind up in this story. No, it's happened to me. I don't know how many times. Next day, maybe a little better. Next day, but once they trust you, and once they're not paying attention to what what you're doing when you're taking the photographs, that's when you will begin to tell the story. And you really need to get into their homes. Yeah, and that and <coughs> it's it's that trust factor really key because if you don't, that's when the candid moments happen, and and people mm-hmm. let their guard down because especially today, because. The, the idea that people are constantly think they're being photographed. I mean, there's CCTV mm-hmm. everywhere. I mean, we joke all the time about you don't want to be the guy that trips walking into the gas station because you're yeah. going to end up on YouTube someplace. Yeah. So people are super conscious. Even if you're uh, Jessica, one of our photographers was talking the other day, still because she's so tall, the way she like texts on her phone, her phone is yeah. upright. So she gets people coming up to her, are you filming me? And like, no, I'm just texting. And so it's just the angle in which, so she's kind of starting to try to text downward because it causes this reaction. But, and so if people are hypersensitive to being photographed, even if you're doing a story about them, they're going to be, you know, on guard. And so that you want to get those unguarded moments to where the story and the moments really happen. Tell me. It's getting Go ahead. It's, 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 it's really getting worse, too, with all the, well, without going into politics, I, the, you know, the pushing and the shoving and the, and that goes on at these political rallies. And, I mean, we had a policeman here and, you know, a couple of policemen in Carbondale, two students down shooting, shooting old signs on, on the, uh, like Coca-Cola for 10 cents, you know, the, the paint, you know, on the mm-hmm. side of some of the buildings. And these policemen pull up and say, what are you doing? They said, we're taking photographs, such and such. Uh, you're not allowed to take photographs here. What? It's a public place. They're on the sidewalk. I mean, what are you doing? And that's, you know, that, uh, the, I guess the, the whole atmosphere in this country now about, uh, well, journalists in particular, it's, it's you got to be careful. I mean, to some extent, you have to be careful. It's just, it comes with street smarts to some extent, but some of these people are, wow, just over the top. Oh, it's, it, it's amazing. I, 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 you know, I, you know, you go to stuff and you go to spot news and whatever, and you, you know, you keep your eyes, you know, um, you know, there's somebody who threatened to shiv you or knife you or do whatever. And, and mm-hmm. yeah, that, I mean, that's happened, but I, I don't know that I was ever, as fearful for my own safety is that when you were dealing with the 2016 campaign, that the people who were responding to that, and it's only gotten worse and that, that this, this kind of fever in their eyes and, and mm-hmm. it's, and it's in their emboldened and it, and it, and I told the class that I spoke to last week, it's scary. And we have to make sure that we're, we know 
how to protect ourselves and and be safe and get the picture at the same time because you know a mob of people is a mob of people you do and and that's uh that's something that uh boy is that hard to you know to explain to people at times you asked me earlier about you know how do you know and i think well maybe because i'm a veteran and maybe because i had some idea of that but in chicago I could tell when it was a hostile situation or not when I got out of the car. Yeah. I mean, you could just tell. And you knew who you could approach and who you couldn't approach a lot of times. And and it, it was, I'm not saying you won't make a mistake, but, you know, the, but most of the time you could tell. I think the only time I couldn't tell was a lot of times in Central America, there's nothing more dangerous than a 14-year-old with an AK-47. <laughs> That's the quote of the day. I mean, there is nothing more dangerous than that because you don't know. And, you know, walking down streets where Sandinistas and Contra, you know, were, were both sides would talk to you. Obviously, the, the, the Sandinistas were a little more standoff with us because the U.S. government was backing the Contras. But watching that or watching them, if they've been drinking or something like that, you know. You figure it out real quick. And a lot of times the people will turn around and, and they'll give you cues too of, of, of what's going on. Yeah, I had the a greatest, go ahead. The great the greatest currency I had in, in covering those wars was Marlboro cigarettes. Hmm. You could pull out you could pull out a package of, of, of Marlboro cigarettes and someone would come up and start talking to you. And they would tell you what was going on. I'm not advocating for it. I'm just saying it was true. <laughs> no, that's okay. You know, I and I, I, I preach that the the get to to know your public and your community, mm-hmm. um, know who all the movers and shakers are. And I learned that lesson by walking up to it when I was a young photographer in Iowa City. I walked up to the longtime congresswoman and asked her for her name. Uh, and what city she lived in. And she looked at me like I had three heads, you know, I, she's like, don't you know who I am? I'm like, no, I'm just a sophomore. Um, but you know, you, those are the kinds of, you know, lessons you learn, but you've, you know, knowing your, knowing who's mayor, who's, what cops are going to talk. You know, I had, uh, I, I love to see old chief Adolf Defoe, who was the longtime East Moline police chief, Cause I had to do a, there was a perp walk for, I don't remember what the guy did. And I came running into the police station and he's, he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, Oh, well you guys are, have you moved blah, blah, blah yet? And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, go out, stand on the corner, wait a few minutes. I'll take care of you. And chief walked that guy slowly to the car so yeah. that I could get the shot of the guy walking to the car And, um, you know, it's because, you know, I always treated chief with respect and those are the kind of relationships you need to build in this job as a, as a journalist, not just a photojournalist, but as a journalist in general, you know, your contact list, your phone nowadays, you've got a whole bunch of people, you know, Hey, who can we get to call this? I'm like, I got it. You know, I mean, I got, let me call this guy. So boom, you know, you get it figured out. Uh, Yeah, you're right. And one of the, like Chicago, in, in my years in Chicago, I, I, I made friends with a lot of, of Chicago policemen and they knew if they were doing something wrong, it all bets were off. But if I pulled up on a scene and they would turn around and say, Hey, 
This guy over here is undercover. Please don't get him in a photograph. Okay. I'd do that. Or I would turn around and I would shoot it in such a way that he was not, you know, identifiable. But that was fair. I mean, you know, to me, that was fair. I'm not going to. It wasn't my job to to take a photograph to get someone killed or hurt. It was my job to go there and tell the story as best I possibly could. Policemen, uh, if they didn't have their hat on in Chicago, they would be suspended without pay for a week. Okay. The only time I violated that was during the, you know, the heat wave up there. And the policeman came out and he turned around and he'd been carrying out dead bodies and he collapsed against the front of his car. The sweat's pouring off of him. He had rubber gloves on. We ran that photograph, but we also informed the police we were going to do it. That's the exception to the rule. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. That's the exception to the rule. Yeah, I had a, I cried. I, go ahead. Huh? Go ahead. I, I cried one time because there was a 311 fire. It was when we had phone booths. And it was knocked down. There was white smoke in the background. And there was a, a fireman at the payphone talking on the payphone. You could see all the smoke and everything rising up, up behind him. I said, this is a hell of a photograph. This is win awards. But if I do this, are they going to catch hell for it? And it wasn't factual. Because you know the fire had been knocked out, he wasn't doing anything wrong. Right. Yeah, I had a I had a meg agent once call me because uh, I he was he was on he was in an unmarked car and we were doing a story about people making illegal U turns at this intersection. So I'm standing in the yeah. median waiting for somebody to take an illegal U turn. Well, who takes the illegal U turn but the meg agent? <laughs> and so he's clearly visible in the driver's seat. And yeah. I could see him like give me a weird look as he drove by me in the middle of Interstate 74. <laughs> and then I got back to the office, and the managing editor said, "Hey, you gotta you gotta go back and shoot that picture again." I'm like, "What do you mean? I got I got it. I go I got a guy. You can it clears. He goes, no, he's a big agent. You gotta go back.'" I'm like, "Oh, all right, I got it. No problem. I'll go stand in the middle of the highway for another half hour." <laughs> yeah. So Hope I don't get killed. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Well, you know, I always love tornadoes. Hey, go stand on the I-74 bridge and shoot the tornado coming down the, the river. No, I'm I'm not going to go do that. That's that's I'd rather have live ammo shot over my head than stand on a suspension bridge when a tornado was coming. So anyway. So tell me before yeah. we go about Emmett meeting Emmett Till's mother. Emmett Till's mother was a uh oh, she was in Chicago, Southside Church. First time I met her and uh, made me tell. I didn't know she was going to be there. I read a lot. I knew about Emmett Till and knew about Mamie Patel and everything. I walked, you know, when I went in, she was she was working with young children. And she introduced herself and I, I looked at her and I said, I know that name. And she said, uh, I'm Emmett Till's mother. And I said, wow, nice to meet you. And she was working with the with these these students. She had a little five year old boy. She said, "I want you to listen to him." She stood him up. He's standing there in a white shirt and he had his bow tie on and everything. He launched into to Dr. King's "I Have a Dream." I have a dream speech, and I was looking at him. I had this photograph, and she suddenly there were tears streaming down her face. He took that photograph. I sent her a copy of the little boy doing it, and she uh, she said, uh, and she looked at the paper, and she said, the image of me moved me. That's how I met her. 
Wow. And then I used to see her once in a while on the South Side when she would do other things. I mean, we weren't close friends, but, but uh, that's how I met her. I did talk to her once for like 20 minutes about, you know, what has happened in Mississippi and, and all the things that are going on, you know, going on in, in uh, oh, racism and stuff like that. But she was she was really a great lady. She had those kids, every one of them. When you talk about, you could just, she emitted love. She really did. And and uh, had what happened to her and everything, you know, she was, she was, she was something else. I don't really think even after that, there was a racist bone in that woman's body. Wow. Because she would, you know, whenever she'd meet me, we weren't friends. I'm not claiming that. But whenever she would meet or we'd see someone or I'd see her in the event, she'd walk over and hug me. I mean, I don't think there was a racist bone in her body. I, I believe that she, she, she really tried to make things better. I really do think that she's special. That's an awesome story. I, I just, um, and it just speaks to the, to the, to the beauty of this profession and the connections that we make with people and the difference that, that we can make with our images. You are, um, uh, a great evangelist for photojournalism, and I and I think that's amazing. And the students at, at SIU are very lucky to have you. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I think I've got one more left in me. You know, I, I, one more book. We're going to go to uh, Johnson County, Vienna, next uh, next uh, fall, and I'm going to send them down for a semester. We found a. Uh, in Morris Library, fifty years ago, some photos out, out of out of it. It's a one one stoplight town. Mm-hmm. Their football team plays on a converted cow pasture. It's awesome. They, they they can only play on Saturday afternoon because they don't have lights. They don't have uh, a dressing room, so they pu- they they pull up into the parking lot. They usually have their their pads and, and pants and everything on, but then they go out to the edge of the cornfield. They put on their other pads and their jerseys and everything. <laughs> that's awesome that's going to be great well if you ever need anybody if you ever need a, a a professional that you want to you know I'm more than welcome to come and help in any way shape or form because I, I right. would love to spend some time uh, talking to you in person and not just on the telephone um, but uh, yeah I love the outreach I just uh, it's the best the best part of my day is to is to when you're working with the young people and, and uh, yeah. I, I found that uh uh, I was a pretty good photographer, but I think that um, on my gravestone, that the 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 lives of the 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 photojournalists that that I helped impact, I think, would probably be my my greatest legacy. I you know I just I just think what you're doing is awesome, and I think that uh, for as many amazing pictures as you've taken, that you're giving your the the the, the love of photojournalism that you and and White John White, of course have spread over the years is just, is just fantastic. I don't know where the profession would be without you guys. There were a lot of them out there who, who, uh, who gave a lot. And, you know, if you talk to John, he'll talk to you a little bit. He'll mention a guy by the name of Chuck Scott. Mm-hmm. And I'll mention a guy by the name of Chuck Scott. And, uh, yeah, there were, there, there were quite a few. And at one time, I guess when you were a young man and I'll quit with this, 
believe it or not, Illinois was the epicenter. And they had the Daily News. You had Gary Settle. You had Perry Riddle. You had uh, Don Behrman. You had John White. You had uh, several over at the Tribune. When you went to Champaign-Urbana, you had Rutledge, Beamer, and Greer. You went to Peoria, and you had three or four really strong people there. Hell, Peoria used to have a helicopter. And not to mention Springfield. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But Peoria used to have a helicopter. Oh, my God. They they did. They they would fly to disaster areas in in the state of Illinois. They had the pilot on. He worked for I never knew that story. I had no idea that Peoria had a had a helicopter at one time. It sure did. Yeah. But that's the that's the that's the I grew up in that. That's the that's the that was what was was sharpening me uh yep. and and the competition level um God, I forget what his name was, but he was the director of photography at the Quad City Times. He went to go work for governor uh for Big Jim Thompson. And he came I don't know. I finished I finished fairly high one year yeah. and um and he goes, given the market you're coming from against the guys you're competing in, you might as well have won because yeah. it, you're outgunned. You know, you're outmanned and you're outgunned. And the fact that you were able to turn the assignments that you were getting here into that, then yeah. and that always that really really made me, you know, gave put things into perspective. But also how good the state of Illinois and the photographers were in this state. It was just unbelievable. I mean, the the crew that's in, still in Peoria, I mean, mm-hmm. I think they're a well. Let's see, Zawicki just went to to um, Champaign, yeah, to Illinois. Yeah. Who's uh, Zelaznik and uh, oh, Ron Johnson. Ron's amazing, and so yes, those guys are churning out. I mean, I I I tweeted out one of Ron Johnson's. Tweets, or I don't think it was, I think it was Ron's, from a from a rain out of a baseball game. And mm-hmm. his three-picture tweet was a photo story. Mm-hmm. In and of itself, the story of that rain out. There were yeah. three different angles, three different images that helped tell the story of that rain out in a tweet. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, young photographers, you need to study this tweet because this tweet is what this is all about. I, I tell them you shoot everything like it's a picture story. Yeah. Everything like it's a picture story. If you come back, my God, it's not like, you know, I, I fall back to the dark ages. Okay. You know, when it was 120, you had 12 exposures. Then you went to 35, you had 36 exposures. You got this card now. And if you're there, use it. It's not costing you anything. Uh, I mean, I don't want you to go to an event and come back with 500 photographs shot from the same, you know, same location. But move around, look at it, shoot, change your angles, look for moments, study the light. I said a photographer, Max Biddle, when he was here, he was, he was talking about doing this farmer, and it was it was for a story, and he was saying uh, he wanted he wanted to shoot something on film, so I handed him a roll of 64. ISO film. He said, but I'm shooting in the shed. I said, do it. Study the light. Figure out how you do this. <laughs> how do you do? He did well. Good. I mean, he, 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 uh, 
he studied the light and the shed and everything, and he he worked it to the point of uh, actually there was there was a skylight above and the light streaming down, and there there was a photo of the guy that he was sagged up against the side of the tractor. It was all he'd been out in the field all day long, and he was just holding a wrench in one hand, and he was just leaning back, and he hit his head and threw it back. Yeah. Okay, if you come out on, an, on a shoot like that, and, you, and you've been there for, I think he was only there for like an hour, and you come back with a photo like that, and you're going to put, you know, if you're in a newspaper, your editor's going to do a happy dance. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. But, uh, and it makes you think. That's the, that's the how am I going to do this? My God, today, with what you've got out there with the digital cameras and the ISOs and the lack of noise and, and all of these things, I wish I'd have had them back then. I mean, I have no problem with it at all. It's, you know, it's, it really opens up a lot, of, a lot more doors than we had. It, I, I wonder sometimes that I look back in the archive of um, assignments that I've shot, and I'm like, oh my God, think of what I could have done if I'd had this, or then I could set up mm-hmm. a remote camera and done this. And then, you know, but woulda, coulda, shoulda. I mean, I think that we, the, that 36 exposure role, I think it taught us a lot about light and to understand light and our subjects and to, to watch and not just dive in and start blasting away and that you had to kind of observe a scene because you had X number of rolls of film in your pocket, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, one of the lessons that, that uh, well, I give them this in class. This is your assignment. You're to go and sit in one place for one hour, not to move from that place. And I want you to, to come back with an interesting photograph. One place, one hour. It's a good assignment. I and like that idea. Huh? I, I like that idea. Well, you'll come back sometimes. It's just the way, you know, if they're smart and they pick the right time of day, it, it can even be the way the light is changing. But I've had... Uh, Squirrels fighting over French fries. I've had uh, a couple sitting down on a bench across from them and breaking up. <laughs> so you never know, but just one hour. Yeah, but it, what it what it does is it teaches them to to pay attention, to observe. So, well, right. Phil, like I can't thank you enough for sitting down with me and 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 taking the time. We've been uh, an hour and twenty two minutes. I don't know what the I will, I'm not going to oh, cut anything. I'm not cutting anything. You're too damn interesting. Now uh, you could cut something. I, I'm sure I, I, I messed up on something. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. All right, brother. Thanks very much. We'll see you. Uh-huh. All right. You bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Talking Pictures Podcast. I told you in the intro that it was a great episode, an inspiring episode, and I think it really lived up to its billing. Thanks to Phil for coming on the show and sharing some of his stories and preaching the gospel of photojournalism. I got so fired up editing this episode, I wanted to run out and shoot an assignment. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time and keep flight, everybody. Make sure you never miss a podcast by subscribing to the Talking Pictures podcast on iTunes, Podbean, or any place podcasts are distributed. The music was provided by Kevin McLeod at www.incomputech.com.
To see some of the photos and videos discussed in our podcast, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog at talkingpicturespodcast.blogspot.com. The Talking Pictures Podcast is produced by Todd Meisner with help from Todd Welvert, Meg McLaughlin, Jessica Gallagher, and Gary Crambeck, with a special thanks to Laura Frames and Laura Anderson-Shaw. 